Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, as winter rains descend, mushrooms are blooming across California, in oak and conifer forests, along riverbanks, and even in your own garden. You can forage for the winter trio, yellow-footed chanterelles, black trumpets, and hedgehogs, and you may even come across our new state mushroom, the massive California golden chanterelle. We'll talk about how to identify California's mushrooms, where to find them, and how to forage ethically. It's Fungi on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It's official. California has a state mushroom as of this month. It's the California Golden Chanterelle, a delicious-tasting fungi, say its fans, that can grow so large as to feed a small family. It's one of many mushrooms that you might find in California's forests this season. And so this hour, we're going to learn more about mushroom foraging and how to prepare the bounties you might find. What have you always wanted to know about mushrooms? identifying them, picking them, or cooking them, you can tell us at 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org, or you can find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. We're on Instagram, X, or at our Discord community. Joining me now from Los Angeles is Jess Starwood, founder of the Wild Path School, where she runs foraging, wild foods, and herbalism classes for adults and kids, and is also the author of Mushroom Wanderland. Jess, welcome to Forum. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Glad to have you with us. And also with us is Gordon Walker, who's based in Napa, a PhD biochemist, mushroom educator, and fermentation consultant. He also hosts the podcast Fascinated by Fungi. Gordon, really glad to have you too. Thank you for having me. So a state mushroom, as I mentioned, tell us about the California golden chanterelle and why it's the symbol, Gordon. I understand you had some role in at least us getting a state mushroom. Well, it was a product of a voter referendum where we voted on a number of different mushrooms. And the California Golden Chantal wasn't actually my first choice, but it is a very emblematic mushroom, especially of California, given the species name there. Uh, it associates with oak trees and it's having a banner season this year. It's absolutely everywhere. And as far as I know, it fruits pretty much up and down the entire state. I think Jess sees it in L.A. the same as I see it here in Napa and Sonoma. Uh, and I went in last June uh, with an invitation from the California uh, Biodiversity uh, Group. And thanks to uh, Rep. Ash Calra, we got a chance to go before a Senate committee and essentially pitch our case that the voters would like there to be a state mushroom. Uh, and, you know, I talked a little bit about my experience of foraging it, cooking it and finding it because there's just these huge 
beautiful, charismatic golden mushrooms. Um, they tend to be a little bit dirty. So their other name is mud puppies because they're kind of down in the dirt, uh, but they're phenomenal. And I'm, I'm just really happy that we have a state mushroom now. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit more about the case you made. You, you described talking about foraging for it and all of that, but what is the value of designating a state mushroom? What does it communicate? The value is putting fungi first in a way, because we've always talked about flora and fauna. And there's sort of a new movement from a thing called the Fungi Foundation to globally start adopting terminology for funga. So we're including fungi in the conservation language. And I think it's a huge step forward because California has recently invested a bunch of money in trying to understand what types of mushrooms and fungi are around here in the state. So we can get a baseline for how many species there are. And that allows us as the future goes on to understand how things are changing as a function of climate change. And it's just really important for California as a bastion of biodiversity and sort of protector of nature to adopt a state mushroom and ensconce that in legislation. Yeah, I do feel like I've learned more and more about just how critical mushrooms are in our ecosystems. And, and so this is something that draws attention to that. You also mentioned that the golden chanterelle is not your first choice. So what was your first choice? <laughs> um, my first choice was the jack-o'-lantern mushroom. It's Omphalotus olivacens. It's this big sort of pale orange greenish mushroom that glows in the dark. Uh, and you can use it to dye fabrics, but it's also fairly toxic. And I, I think it's a, a more interesting mushroom overall, even though it's not an edible one. This just has different uses and uh, is very common. And it's, it's one that people also confuse for the chanterelle. So it's a, a good one to kind of be aware of if you're out looking for those chanterelles. Because as you say, it is a toxic mushroom. But it, yes. it is it's not deadly toxic, but it will certainly screw with your gut for a while. It's actually, <laughs> have you ever seen Phantom Thread? It was the... Um, it's a, a thing about this designer, you know, crazy sort of fashion designer guy. And he freaks out every once in a while. And there's a woman who feeds him poisonous mushrooms to kind of slow him down. And she actually <laughs> feeds him uh, on full of those, you know, jack-o'-lantern mushrooms. In the, in the movie, they just spray paint some oyster mushrooms orange. But, you know, it's close enough. So. I did see that mushroom and now I or that movie. And now I'm so glad to yep. know what yep. that mushroom was. Yep. There you go. <laughs> well, Jess, I am guessing that you're pretty happy about the golden chanterelle because I understand that it is one of your favorites. Tell us a little bit more about it, what maybe Gordon left out, and even why people say it's delicious. Uh, yeah, it is definitely one of my favorite ones to eat um, and really to find because they're great at hiding uh, in the landscape. And, you know, to be honest, it took me probably about five years to find my first one of looking, you know, I was looking year after year. And I have to tell you that one, that time I found the first one was just exhilarating. And it's so fun to cook with. I, I love the flavor. Um, it really adds, you know, just a, a nice, sweet nuttiness to what you're cooking with. Um, it goes well with you know, all sorts of different dishes and uh, very versatile. And and also they're really big. Uh, if you find, uh, you know, a big one, it's could be up to like two or three pounds and you have a lot of mushroom to work with. So uh, on a good year like this one so far, you know, I'm going to be cooking chanterelles pretty often and experimenting with a lot of different um, recipes. And yeah, it's it's. Definitely one of my favorites. It's described as having false gills. What does that mean, Jess? So, yeah, instead of 
Like, if you think about your mushrooms that you buy at the store, your portobello mushrooms, or, you know, your white button mushrooms, they're going to have these gills that look like book pages. And a chanterelle doesn't have those. It has more of a vein-like texture um, instead of those gills. So, um, yeah, that's what you're going to be really looking for so that you're not confusing it with another um, possibly toxic mushroom that you should not be eating. So, Gordon, Jess is talking about how it's a big year for golden chanterelles. You've mentioned the so-called winter trio, which I also understand is a pretty good one or contains pretty good mushrooms for beginning foragers. This includes the black trumpets, the hedgehogs, and yellow feet chanterelles. Tell us about those mushrooms, starting with the black trumpets, because that just sounds intriguing. Sure, sure. So the, the chanterelles are more of an inland thing that I tend, tend to find under oak, whereas the winter trio is what you tend to see out on the coast this time of year. Mm. Uh, so the black trumpets are Craterellus calicornicopioides. It's, it's a mouthful, but that's it. Um, and they're really weird mushrooms. There's not that many things in nature that are like really, truly black, but there's a fair number of mushrooms that are black. And the uh, black trumpets are something that sort of elude you as you're hunting around the woods because you're almost looking like for the absence of something. You see a chanterelle, you catch a little piece of orange and it like sings to you, know it's there. Whereas the trumpets, you can be surrounded by them and have absolutely no idea that you're on top of them until you just look down and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm, you know stepping on them essentially um and so it's you sort of have to completely readjust your eye set as you're hunting for them because it's a it's a different kind of mushroom experience because it's not just the sort of the bright orange or bright yellow or something that's catching you and they are uh they have a very sort of like ethereal deep earthy flavor that's different from most other mushrooms i'd almost relate it more to the flavor of like a morel or a truffle almost mm. because it is black uh, a few years ago, Jess and I actually did some cooking where we took like every black mushroom we could find and we put it in with black rice and, and cooked that up. Wow. Um, more more for the novelty, but it was <laughs> it was good too. But uh, so black trumpets are really cool. I like to use them a little bit more as like a seasoning because they have this this cool sort of earthy flavor and spread them through, you know, a creamy dish or something with a lot of starch and pasta. And uh, they're very good at flavoring the ingredients around them. The other one is the, the yellowfoot, which is also a craterella species. And so the black trumpet and the yellowfoot are both sort of hollow. And they're technically chanterelles, but neither of them are actually a true cantharellus chanterelle. Um, they're this craterella, so it's another genus that are usually smaller and hollow. Uh, the yellowfoot has this sort of brilliant yellowy, orange, like brownish stem. And uh, it also has this sort of decurrent ridges that run down uh, underneath the cap like a, like a golden chanterelle. Uh, except that it is hollow. And that one is, it's good. It's not like my favorite quite as much as a black trumpet, but it's a solid one. I really like to candy it. So I'll boil it in like a sugar syrup. And then it has this beautiful soft velvety, velvety texture when it's cooked down. And so I'll put that on top of ice cream or uh, biscuits or something like that. And then the other one is the hedgehog. Yeah. And that's phenomenal because it's just beautiful pink little orangey buttons. Um, there's two sort of bit kinds. There's a bigger one which is a little bit whiter and a little bit more solid and meaty, but not quite as sweet. And then the little belly button hedgehogs are really, really delicious and nutty when you cook them up. Uh, they also last a really long time in the fridge, which is phenomenal because you can pick them and eat them up to like two, three weeks later. Uh, but they have tiny little teeth under the caps and it makes them really, really yeah. easy to identify. And that's that's what all three of these mushrooms are really easy to identify and really easy to find. So that's why they're the winter trio and they're great for beginner mushroom foragers. 
That's what was so interesting about the hedgehog to me when I took a closer look at the picture as I was preparing for this and realized that the gills looked so different from, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, it's technically it's the hymenium. That's like the spore dispersal surface. But you can have, you know, gills or teeth or pores or lots of different sort of mechanisms. But uh, the hedgehogs are actually related evolutionarily to chanterelles. They just happen to grow teeth instead of little ridges. Well, this listener on Discord asks, what exactly is the relationship of mushrooms to temperature and moisture? Why do they need so much rain to fruit? Because we have been talking, Gordon, about how this has been a good year and we have had a mm-hmm. lot of rain recently. So what is that relationship? Uh, well, the down in the soil, you have lots of mycelium, which is little hair-like threads. Uh, and that is sort of the body of the fungus. And the mushroom is really just this temporary reproductive structure like a fruit or a flower that pops up as sort of this little discrete thing but mushrooms form because all that mycelium is absorbing lots of water and it's at the right sort of temperature conditions to create a mushroom so it forms what's called a little primordia or a little pin essentially a mini version of a mushroom uh, out of lots of fungal cells called hyphae and those swell with water to create a mushroom essentially so if you don't have enough water the primordia won't swell to a full size. So you need to have a lot of moisture around uh, for that mushroom to grow from the moisture in the soil. And you also need the right temperature and moisture conditions in the air for that mushroom to form. We are talking about mushroom foraging in California. And listeners, I want to know, have you been out mushroom foraging this season? What have you found or noticed? Or maybe you're curious about mushroom foraging, haven't tried it yet, and have questions about getting started. You can email them to forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. Call us at 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. Maybe there's a particular mushroom you're trying to find. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It's mushroom season in California, and California also just named a state mushroom, the golden chanterelle. We're talking about how to identify some common types, where to find them, answer your questions with Gordon Walker, a PhD biochemist and mushroom educator and fermentation consultant, host of the podcast Fascinated by Fungi. Jess Starwood is also with us, founder of the Wild Path School and also author of Mushroom Wanderland, a forager's guide to finding, identifying, and using more than 25 wild fungi 
fungi, you should also check out both of their Instagram accounts, which is full of amazing mushroom photos. You, our listeners, are sharing your questions and comments about mushrooms. Have you been out this season? Do you have tips for fellow foragers or would like tips from our guests? Are you curious about how to get started with mushroom foraging? Maybe you want to learn more about specific California mushrooms or even ways to prepare or preserve them. Our guests can handle it all. Gordon Walker's from Napa, Jess Starwood's based in L.A. The email address is forum at kqed.org for your questions or comments. Our social channel is on Instagram, our digital community on Discord. You can find us on X. You can call us at 866-733-6786. And this listener wants to know, where can you find those giant puffball mushrooms. I see them all the time online and they look so funky. Is that enough to go on, Jess, a (laughs) giant puffball mushroom? Uh, Yeah. So those are really fun to find. And they, I find them more up in the mountains. Um, We have some here in LA, uh, in the LA mountains. And you're going to find those during the summer though, or late summer. um, If there's some monsoon rains, uh, they seem to like a lot warmer weather than our uh, winter mushrooms right now. And yeah, you know, all you need is one in that case. <laughs> and you're going to have mushrooms for mushrooms on your every meal for probably a week <laughs> or more. Who knows? You know, uh, they are they can get massive. And, you know, I I was very excited to find my first ones and. Uh, you know, a couple years ago. But after that, I think, you know, I think I'm good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> even my kids were like, you know, whenever you say puffball, we're like, mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> no, because <laughs> to be honest, like I tried so many different recipes with that and everything I could with one mushroom. And by the end, I was like, okay, I've exhausted it, and we're good. (laughs) Well, that is not the case for you with morels, right? Just because I remember (laughs) reading that you, you know, your excitement for them never wanes. And that is such an interesting mushroom. I'd love for you to tell us about foraging for that one. And and even if you want to describe what it looks like, just to remind listeners, it's so cool. Yeah, so morels are... (laughs) I just love morels, and they, they're kind of a smaller mushroom. Uh, once in a while, they get, you know, fairly big, about the size of your hand, maybe. Um, but they have a, a small stipe or stalk, and then the top is kind of a cone shape, and it's full of these big divots in it, um, kind of like a, almost like a honeycomb sort of texture. And so these are going to be around in the spring, up in the mountains, and um, they can be in a great abundance after a wildfire. So you can end up with basketfuls and basketfuls. Um, other times, you know, if you're looking for natural morels, uh, those are going to be a little bit harder to find, a little bit, you know, sp- more spaced apart. And it's going to take some time to, to find those. Um, but yeah, you know, we have a lot of wildfires here, and which, you know, are pretty devastating and not that great for us but you know there's a chance of morels afterwards and yeah they're they're just tasty i i have not gotten sick of them yet (laughs) (laughs) let me go to caller lucinda and sausalito lucinda you're on hey good morning i've always been told to brush my mushrooms before cooking them but my husband loves to wash them off so i'd like to finally um 
find the, the true <laughs> true way of preparing okay. them before. Yeah, before I I trails. I get it. Definitive answer, Lucinda wants <laughs> on whether to brush or wash. Who wants to take that one? I'll take uh, that. I, I, uh, okay, go for right. it. Uh, oh, if you disagree, we'll hear from you. I think we have the same answer, but I want to, yeah, go go for it, Jess. So, yeah, you can, if they're fairly clean, you can just brush them off. You don't need to, you know, use any water, especially if they're from the store. Um, they're pretty clean. There's not going to be much dirt or anything on them. They're, you know, coming from a sterile environment. Uh, but if you're collecting from the wild, yeah, go ahead and wash them off. You know, these things are out in the rain. They're going to be getting wet. I've heard, you know, people say that you can't get mushrooms wet when you're going to cook them. You know, keep them dry. They're going to get waterlogged. But no, they're 90% water anyway. So wash them off. I don't like dirt in my in my dinner. So get rid of it. If you need to wash it off with a sprayer, use a, a brush, use whatever you need to uh, to clean it, and and you're good. And you agree, Gordon? Uh, yeah, I would add one caveat. So for like the big golden chanterelle, I really like to, those are literally called mud puppies because they tend to be in dirt. So there's a fair bit of washing you have to do to get the dirt off. And then I like to set them out overnight to dry off and then you can store them in the fridge. Uh, for some of the more textural mushrooms, like the winter trio, the black trumpet, the hedgehog, those are hard because there's so many kind of little nooks and crannies. So instead of just running those underwater, I tend to soak them a couple of times until I get the water to run clear. And then if you want to dry them off, you can put them in a salad spinner. Same with morels. Well, Daniel writes, how do you tell between the good and the deadly mushroom? All my life, I've been warned about the risks of picking mushrooms. If you don't know what you're doing, how do I pick mushrooms without worrying? I think you have said, Gordon, that you get this question a ton. What can you say? Because it is so specific, right? Uh, I mean, the, the first thing I would say is never assume the edibility of a mushroom uh, because there is no rule. There's no like little cute saying that is going to keep you safe when you're picking mushrooms. The thing you have to recognize, though, is that most mushroom poisoning cases happen with two mushrooms in the state. So it's the death cap and the destroying angel, and they're both Amanita species. So if you can learn to recognize what those two mushrooms are and the general archetype of an Amanita, just don't pick those. Don't go near them as a beginning for and you've just taken away most of the actual risk of picking and eating a, a deadly poisonous mushroom. Well, Chris writes, please stress that foraging is not allowed at almost all our local parks and preserves. Please don't just pick up a mushroom, look at it and toss it down again. Part of the pleasure of winter walks is noticing fungi. Okay, a couple questions from that. Maybe Jess, first of all, noticing fungi. What's a shrump? <laughs> Uh, yes. So a shrimp is a fun term to describe what you're looking for, uh, for a mushroom that is growing in the ground and it's covered by, uh, whether it's leaf litter or dirt, uh, and it's going to look like there's something under the ground that's pushing up and you're not necessarily going to see these at first. It's, it takes some time to, uh, get to, to you know, see these small little details in the environment. Um, I was with Gordon when he was first learning to <laughs> identify shrimps. And it was amazing to see him just so excited. Like from one minute, he's like, there's no mushrooms here to the next minute of, 
wow, here they, they're all here. Like, there's one, there's <laughs> one, there's one. Because you're just looking for these little disruptions in the ground. And whether it's a crack in the dirt or you can see the leaves are being pushed up from underneath. And that's like with our chanterelles. You can have a two-pound mushroom hiding under all of this duff. And there's you, you just see a, a small little crack of... Like maybe there's a little bit of yellow under there um, of something that's, you know, peeking through. And yeah, so shrimps are key to, to finding, um, you know, a lot of, of, of good species. Yeah, these little areas where the earth is raised. So then the other thing that question or comment about not foraging in certain places points out is how should we forage if we're starting? Like, where should we go? What should we know about where it's allowed and where it's not allowed? Just some of the basic things, Gordon, for getting started. So you have to check all of your local laws and municipalities. Uh, there, As far as I know, there's really no hunting in state parks outside of Point Reyes, Salt Point, and Jackson State Forest. And you can hunt at Point Reyes and Salt Point, um, but there are limits, and so you want to be aware of what those limits are. And then in Jackson State Forest, you need to obtain a permit to forage there, but there are no limits. Uh, in terms of going out and looking and touching and doing other things with mushrooms, um, I would highly encourage people to actually get down on the ground and like look at a mushroom. And you can pick it up, smell it, touch it, feel it, take photos of it. You usually have to pick a mushroom to take a decent photo of it. But then you can just put the mushroom right, right back where it was. And, you know, no harm, no foul. You're not, you don't need to go off path and touch every single mushroom. But I think it's okay to interact with nature a little bit as long as you're doing it responsibly and you're not like wantonly destroying everything that you see. Yeah. And then also in terms of cutting or plucking the mushroom, <laughs> I understand this is kind of a big debate in the mushroom yes. community? Well, it's, so it's, it's, it's a debate really only on one side. I feel like it's a <laughs> debate from people who aren't educated enough about mushrooms so that the only thing that they know is that they've heard that you should cut a mushroom, but they can't really explain to you why. They'll say, oh, because more mushrooms won't grow. And you're like, well, that's clearly not true. You know, Jess and I have gone out and cut or plucked mushrooms in many places before, and we continue to find mushrooms there the next year. Um, this misunderstanding comes, I think, just from sort of like cultural norms and there was a, a paper a study they did. There was a 30-year longitudinal study they did in Switzerland, as well as a sort of 14-year uh, parallel study they did in Norway, where they had different plots where they were cutting versus plucking. And what they saw over 30 years worth of data was that there was no significant difference in the number of mushrooms or the diversity of mushrooms that would come up between the two different harvesting things. The one effect they did see was that the more trampling of an area uh, the more compaction of the soil led to less mushroom fruiting bodies. And that's my worry is that the few parks that people are allowed to go forage at are getting absolutely trampled because people aren't allowed to go elsewhere. And that's going to hurt the mushrooms more than I think it, people really taking stuff out of the environment in many ways. Hmm. Well, let me go to Brian in San Rafael. Brian, join us. Hi. Um, I recently got into foraging last year with all the the big rain that we got. And uh, this year I was happy to find my first porcini on the coast. Um, and I've, my, what I've been wondering about is how I've noticed how mushrooms make such striking photos. They're really you know, Instagrammable. They make really popular posts on social media. And I, I think a lot of people along with myself have gotten into mushroom foraging in the last couple of years. 
And I'm wondering how much more popularity do you think our local area can sustain? Hmm. So it kind of gets at what you were talking about a little bit about people trampling on on mushrooms and the concerns that you have around that. Do you worry, uh, Gordon, about about you know the foraging area's ability to handle a growing popularity, more people out there doing this? Yes, but less about the people that are doing it and more about the health of the habitat because it's the health of our pine forests that determine how many more porcini they're going to be. Uh, these are ectomycorrhizal mushrooms, so the mycelium is living in conjunction with the living roots of trees. And unfortunately, our pine trees especially are really suffering right now because of a bark beetle and this Cryptoporus vulvatus, this little sort of mochi of the woods looking thing that grows all over pine trees and ends up killing them in conjunction with this bark beetle. Uh, and really what we need is fire to solve the problem, but we can't really just like set the entire coast on fire. And, you know, pine forests are supposed to burn like every 40, 50 years. But we've been doing so much fire suppression that a lot of these pine trees are dying, which I think is having a much larger effect on the number of porcini that are popping up than necessarily like the uh, popularity of foraging. Because ultimately, it's still a relatively small percentage. Um, people who go out don't always find everything. People aren't systematically removing everything from the woods. And there is some argument that like removing a certain amount of biomass will impact mushroom populations, but it's the loss of healthy tree habitat that is, and climate change that is having a much larger effect than individual foragers. Hmm. Well, so just let's say that you have figured out where are the legal places to go. You are aware and have made yourself aware of the ways that you can maybe have environmental impacts and are going to try to work to mitigate those how then should you choose a foraging location? What are the kinds of things you should be looking for? Yeah, so looking at your environment, uh, I think as a forager, you really get to develop a sense of reading the landscape. So mushrooms, you know, are going to be looking for, or they're, they're going to be in areas that are going to collect water. They're going to be in areas that are shady, that aren't going to dry out. So you're taking into consideration, you know, rainfall and sunlight and, you know, north facing mountainsides tend to be more abundant in mushrooms because it gets less direct sun, um, you know, areas that are exposed to, you know, the elements, wind and sunlight are going to be drier. So you're not going to really be looking there as much. Um, so, and also taking into consideration the weather. You know, is, has it been raining lately? Um, I wouldn't really go mushroom hunting in the middle of July in Southern California. Um, we just don't get any rain and it's dry and hot. So, um, yeah, you're looking for, you know, where the water's going to collect. Um, you're also going to be looking for dead or dying trees for stuff that is saprophytic. Those are ones that are, you know, feeding off of dead trees like your oyster mushrooms, your chicken of the woods, um, lion's mane as well. So don't forget to look up, you know. Those are the ones that are up in the trees and not necessarily on the ground. Um, so, yeah, really developing that way of reading the landscape is important. What supplies should you have with you typically, Jess? Um, I prefer a uh, wicker basket. You know, that's going to keep things from getting all smashed up. Um, I have in the past, you know, used a paper bag at times, but things tend to roll around and get smashed easier that way. Um, also, a mushroom knife is helpful and a brush. 
Uh, a brush is going to be good to help cleaning off all of that dirt in the field as much as you can. Because if you're just throwing mushrooms into your basket uh, with full of dirt and sticks and leaves and bugs and all that, those are going to be harder to clean when you get back home. So, you know, brushing those off, um, especially also mushrooms that have gills, uh, that dirt is going to be getting into the in between those gills and harder to clean. So doing as much cleaning out in the field as possible with that brush um, and then a, you know, like I said, a mushroom knife, which has a slight curve on it. And that's going to be helpful to trim away any parts that are immediately you can see have rotted or are bad. Um, and then uh, that saves you a lot of time when you get back to the kitchen. And a winter, a wicker basket or a paper bag because the mushrooms need a lot of air. You know, when I was a kid in Canada, we would go with plastic buckets, and I'm realizing that was really not a good idea. <laughs> as long as they're not sitting in there for long amounts of time. I mean, I mm. could see, you know, it could work for, um, you know, if it's a short trip back to the kitchen, but um, especially not plastic bags. Um, those are, are the worst. Um, and... Or, you know, use a sweatshirt or a hat. Those always work as well. <laughs> We're coming up on a break, but do you want to really quickly talk about making sure not to get lost? Because you got pretty <laughs> lost at a point where you actually had to call for help, right? Oh, yes. It's so easy to get lost, uh, especially up north, um, down in L.A. It's a little, you know, it's easier to see where you're at. But up there, uh, yeah, there was one time that I was picking chanterelles and head down looking, you know, pick, 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 pick. Um, it was getting dark. I hadn't really planned to find much. So um, I, yeah, got lost, had to call for help. And they came and they got lost and had to <laughs> call someone else, a third person, to come and rescue me. So it, it happens. And it's very important to remember where you're at and you know, stay safe out there. Yeah, bring a phone. Thank goodness you had one with enough battery power to call for help. Barely, and... barely. <laughs> yeah, wow. Well, so glad you made it and also that your rescuers made it out too. We'll have more on mushroom foraging after the break. Stay with us. I'm Nina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about mushroom foraging in California this hour and how to identify some common species, where to find them, how to harvest them ethically, where to go legally. We're also going to now get some tips on how to store, preserve, and cook them with Gordon Walker, a biochemist and mushroom educator in Napa, fermentation consultant. He hosts the podcast Fascinated by Fungi and has a great Instagram account. Jess Starwood is founder of the Wild Path School, where she runs foraging, wild foods, and herbalism classes for adults and kids. Her book is Mushroom Wanderland, a forager's guide to finding, identifying, and using more than 25 wild fungi. And her Instagram account is also amazing as well. You, our listeners, are writing in with all your questions about identifying, foraging, and preparing mushrooms. And this listener wants to know, I have dried mushrooms that are years old. Are they still good? If so, do they need to be kept in an airtight container? They've been in a dark cupboard. Hmm. Would they still be good, Gordon? Uh, in all likelihood, yeah. Uh, there's some mushrooms that actually get better as they get older because the umami gets a little more intense. Um, mm -hmm. There's a few things that kind of lose a step or two after a couple of years, but usually I'll use dried mushrooms up to two, three years later. And there's some even that, you know, five, six, seven years later, they're much more intense, like candy caps, which smell like maple, and which just get better and better as they age. Mm. Well, let me go to caller Amelia in Napa. Amelia, you're on. Hi, I'm calling from Kitchen Door Restaurant here in Napa. Oh, nice. And my husband, Todd Humphreys, and I have been avid mushroom hunters for years and years and years. Uh, I just wanted to say that my favorite way to eat wild mushrooms is not on his mushroom pizza, although it is fantastic. <laughs> but I love them in a quesadilla. Ooh. And we nice use... A lot of the winter mushrooms we find, uh, chanterelles, hedgehogs, uh, winter mushrooms, um, black trumpets, all kinds of uh, wonderful things like that go into a quesadilla. Really simple, and it's delicious. Oh, thanks, Amelia. You're kicking off a question I've been wanting to ask Jess. Your favorite way to prepare mushrooms, or if you have a favorite recipe you want to share too, Jess? Oh, I have so many. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, mushrooms really pair well with, um, like she said, in the quesadilla, they pair well with cheese and, you know, fatty uh, foods. Um, I tend to go more towards plant-based, um, so things like cashew cheese and, and um, you know, ingredients like that. Um, but, you know, they also pair, the umami in them also pair well with meats as well. Um, and, you know, great with pasta and things that, you know, can handle that um, heaviness uh, of them. And, you know, uh, I also like experimenting and doing things, you know, a little bit differently as well. So, um, you know, I, going back to my puffball uh, experimentation phase, I, I made this puffball waffle once, which, you know, you take a slice of the giant puffball and batter it and fry it in a a waffle iron and you have something oh. very unique and unusual you know i've heard people and i've also tried it myself doing the mushroom pizza with a puffball and slicing that into a large uh as the crust the large slice as the crust filling with all your toppings cheese and other mushrooms you could do that um vegetables and whatever and then baking that and you have a very mushroomy mushroom pizza um, also, 
You know, even just something basic like tempura, uh, matsutake tempura, maitake tempura are really delicious. Um, those are going to be, you know, especially with the matsutake, that's going to be really holding in all of those interesting aromatic flavors um, into a really nice juicy but also crispy bite. Um, yeah, mushrooms are, are quite uh you know, flexible in a lot of different applications and fun to experiment. I think there's a lot of experimentation with them that can be uh, explored that we haven't yet. Jess, what's the nutritional value of mushrooms? So for the most part, uh, most mushrooms are up to like 90% water. So they are also and also high in fiber. Um, you're going to get a lot of medicinal properties from them, um, as well as a um, nice range of vitamins, vitamin D. Uh, it actually starts off as ergosterol, and then our bodies turn it into vitamin D, uh, which, you know, most Americans are vitamin D deficient. And they also have lots of uh, B vitamins as well, um, and a decent amount of protein, you know, and by adding more mushrooms to your diet, you're adding more fiber um, and either as like a meat replacement, um, you know, they're going to fill you up. So you're not going to be eating, you know, helps you from overeating. Um, and also, yeah, lots of um, medicinal properties as well. So you're getting a lot of things that are helping to prevent disease, um, you know, so also, you know, they're just super tasty. Let me go to James in San Francisco. James, you're on. Hey, how's it going? This is Michael James from the Hate Street Shroom Shop right Ooh. here in San Francisco. And I wanted to share one of my favorite things with Mayataki is using the air fryer to get them nice and crispy with the right amount of salt and olive oil. And if you do it right, you can make it emulate like a crunchy sardine. And I love to make like a vegan Caesar salad for some of my friends. Ooh. Well, thanks for sharing that, James. Um, well, Mati Martina has a question. Martina on Discord writes, I've learned that squirrels really like mushrooms and will dry and store them. I've observed this with fox squirrels and chip cherries in my backyard. And there are other interesting animal. Are there other interesting animal relationships with mushrooms? Are there species that are particularly preferred by other specific wild animals? Well, let me go to you, Gordon, on that. Sure. Uh, well, truffles are an interesting one because truffles are sort of little lumps of things that grow underground and, and not all truffles are these, you know, really high value culinary ones. There's thousands of species of truffles because every single mushroom eventually evolves into a truffle because it's sort of a effective lifestyle. But the question is, if you're a mushroom underground, you're this little ball, how do you disperse your spores? So those truffles have evolved uh, interesting aromas to attract animals to come dig them up eat them and they either poop out their spores or just sort of you know mash the mushroom around in the environment till the spores get spread and there's a surprising number of rodents squirrels wood rats etc and birds that will actively hunt truffles and then disperse their spores in the environment um, i've also noticed particularly that a lot of boletes and rustla or brittlegill mushrooms are favorites of slugs and you'll find a mushroom that looks pristine but if you look underneath the entire sort of gill or pore surface has been not off by a hungry hungry sluggo which is then going out and dispersing uh, spores and its slime trail all over the place well, this is writes, I replaced my lawn with native plants a few years ago and have been amazed by the various fungi that have appeared. Diversity rules. Oh, it's fun getting listeners talking about what they're noticing in their own backyards. Let me go to Benjamin in Berkeley next. Hi, Benjamin. You're on. 
Hi. Actually, I'm, I just kind of follow in with that uh, talk about the slugs on mushrooms. I just sort of a cautionary tale, but my father and I have been around Berkeley and the, the hills mushrooming for, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And we find these great lump of uh, oyster mushrooms up in a tree. And we bring, you know, brought them home, very excited, you know, we're looking them up, cleaning them off a little bit. And just as I was about to put them in, in the pot and fry them up, literally, you take a very closer look inside the gills. And there were literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of these little translucent white worms with a tiny little, like, black head. They were literally the size less than, like, a grain of rice. But there were, like, hundreds. Just a cautionary tale to... Either that sort of freaked me out for a while with oyster, oyster mushrooms, because I've probably eaten millions of them without knowing. Ah. But, it's, you know, it's a cautionary tale, but don't let it freak you out. You've probably eaten them. What, <laughs> so thank you, Benjamin. What did yeah. Benjamin likely find? Uh, I mean, maggots are, bugs are reality in, in mushrooms. Uh, it's pretty much a great source of food for any insect to lay its eggs and then the you know larvae are going to crawl around um i'd say in a mushroom you see like a bug track or two it's really not that big a deal uh, if you tend to be freaked out by bugs what i'd recommend you do is you can boil your mushrooms first and that will help kind of remove any you know insects and scum that's inside of them and then after boiling you can toss that water and pan fry them um, but if you have millions of little maggots crawling around it's probably better to just leave that out in nature but that's one of the reasons if you see my online i tend to tap mushrooms a lot because if yeah. they're full of bugs you'll see the bugs come streaming out after you've tapped on it and that can kind of give you an idea of like the quality um you know i know jess has plenty of experience too of like picking mushrooms and then she drives back down to la and when she gets there jess you got anything <laughs> to say yeah yeah i've had uh experiences where uh, I think it was that year in Shasta with you, and I had my whole car was full of porcini. It was just an amazing porcini year, and I was super stoked. And you know that was the end of May, so yeah, the weather was great up north. But by the time I got to LA, where you know it's like ninety degrees, and I slept and you know had to sleep halfway down uh, to get there, and it was it was hot. And by the time I got home. Uh, I'd say like 70% of the mushrooms had been eaten thoroughly by bugs. You know, I had ideally would have put them in a refrigerator, but at that time I was just, you know, traveling in my Subaru and <laughs> I, yeah, I did not have enough cooler space to, to keep them all nice and cold. Um, oh. And the bugs went nuts yeah and you know i mean some of them yeah you know you eat bugs when you're foraging for mushrooms it's just kind of part of it um and but you know there's a lot of bugs that are in our regular food every day um we just don't see that yeah well it makes sense i mean Shasta to LA or even a long drive. <laughs> a lot of bugs. We can maybe make a lot of bugs emerge. But Gordon, in terms of tapping them to, to sort of get the, mm -hmm. the bugs to, to start to come out of their little hiding places if they have mm -hmm. them, are there other reasons to do it? You know, besides also maybe tapping off some of the dirt, it sounds like you can listen for the sound they make. What would that tell you? So I just like the sound that mushrooms make. Everyone has its sort of own individual interesting resonance, uh, but it tells you about like the density and the age and the maturity of that mushroom. So a small one will have sort of a, a very like uh, peaked noise that it's because it's so dense and that all the fungal tissues are so tightly wound that you end up with sort of a really like clean tap 
Whereas a, a bigger, more blown out mushroom will sound much more sort of hollow and thumpy kind of thing. Um, but it really does depend on the, the type of mushroom too. So chanterelles are very resistant to bug damage. You don't normally find a chanterelle that's full of bug holes, whereas it's almost impossible to find a porcini that doesn't at least have one little, you know, insect or maggot kind of crawling around in there. But that's what speaks to how long a mushroom will last as well. So if you have nice solid taps, you know that it's a good quality mushroom. And, and usually that's the kind of thing you're going to find under a shrimp. If it's already popped out and it's open on the surface, it's usually sort of past the point where you're going to want to pick it anyhow. But you can use that as a guide to go find little bumps and shrimps nearby, which will then have sort of the little primo specimens that you can pick and give them a little tap. Um, because even sometimes you'll find what looks like the absolute perfect mushroom and then you cut it open and it's absolutely full of bugs. So, it, you know, you just, you never know. Um, you, and that's part of why I like to tap because it just kind of teaches you a little bit about that mushroom. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's for me, I do it more because it's an engagement and a teaching tool than anything else, but it's, it's fun to do. <laughs> We're talking with mushroom experts, Gordon Walker and Jess Starwood, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And this listener writes, uh, my mom used to make this amazing dish with chanterelles, an omelet with onions and thinly sliced potatoes and cheese, simple and delicious. Chanterelles are also good in a cream sauce with chicken or rabbit stew. Thanks, Noel, on Discord for that comment. Martina writes, my four-year-old daughter is amazing at finding mushrooms. She found a really cool translucent one called a cat's tongue just a couple weeks ago. My four-year-old son found the biggest King Bolete on a little neighborhood trail in Bolinas. A friend and I who were with him just walked right by it. Jess, we were talking earlier about drying mushrooms and how long they can last. What about other ways to preserve them, like pickling or fermenting? Absolutely. Yeah, I love pickling mushrooms, uh, especially, you know, the younger, firmer specimens are great. Um, you wouldn't want something that's going to be real flimsy uh, and mushy, Uh but I did a pickled chanterelle, um, just the little tiny chanterelle buttons um, last fall. And those were fantastic. They had a nice crunch to them. Um, but also you can ferment mushrooms as well. You know, that uh, preserves them, changes the texture a little bit. Um, I did a fermented lobster mushroom. And I'm not a really big fan of lo lobster mushrooms, but having them fermented it really kind of gave them a different texture and different experience that, that I enjoyed. So, you know, hmm. even if you don't like a mushroom in one way, you might like it in another way. Hmm. Is that the case for you, Gordon? Is there a favorite mushroom that you like to ferment? Uh, I haven't played around with fermenting as much, but I've done quite a bit of candying, and that's a really fun one because you don't normally think of mushrooms as a sweet option. Uh, and in fact, they're they're great because you can play with the textures and the the sort of savoriness and umaminess goes away when you add a bunch of sugar. And so chanterelles and yellow feet and even that cat's tongue uh, all make really fun candies. Well, let me go to caller Julia in San Francisco. Julia, join us. You're on. Hi, thank you. Um, I appreciate this show, and I've always admired people who can go out and forage for mushrooms um, and know which ones are the good ones. But um, I would appreciate it if you would, um, somebody would talk a little bit about the ethics of going out into the wildlands. And you've talked about it with not disturbing the mushrooms too much, but you really haven't talked about the, the negative impacts it could have on other plants and the wildlife if too many people are just going tromping around 
you know, off trail into the wildlands looking for mushrooms. So if, you, if somebody could speak a little bit to sure. that. Sure. Well, Julia. Encouraging the masses to go out. <laughs> I think that thanks. would be responsible. Thanks for the call. You did touch on this, Gordon, but is there anything else you want to add based on Julia's yeah, concerns and, about, and you know, absolutely. the environmental impacts of foraging? Yeah, yeah. yeah this, is, this is one of the number one things I hear from people. Yeah. Um, and I, I think one of the things I want you to recognize is that foragers end up being like the first line of defense in terms of environmental stewardship because we're out there and we're looking at a habitat. So we notice when trees are dying. We notice when plant diseases are spreading. We notice when invasive species are present. And as foragers, we tend to play a role in sort of ecosystem management. So foragers go out and pick uh, invasive, you know, mustard, go out and pick invasive wild garlic. They'll pick uh, stinging nettles. Uh, We keep an eye out for trash and pick that up. Um, In terms of the ethics of actually foraging mushrooms, this sort of the rule that a lot of people tend to follow is like a rule of thirds, where you're going to take sort of the primo specimens um, that have opened up and spread some of their spores you tend to leave the really young ones and to leave the really old ones and not, you know, get greedy. Only take what you need, only take what you can feasibly carry. Uh, most foragers are not commercial foragers. We're just people out getting a couple of mushrooms for dinner to share with our friends and family. Uh, and this idea that people shouldn't be going out in nature and shouldn't be touching things is, I think, a very problematic idea because, quite frankly, like, What's better is to teach people how to interact responsibly and ethically and sustainably with nature rather than saying we shouldn't go out and we shouldn't touch anything. And as I talked about, uh, it's the biggest danger is sort of over compaction of soil in terms of the effect on mushrooms and fungi. So sticking to paths is good. You know, if you find a hotspot, that's when you can kind of spread out a little bit. Uh, being aware of your impact, though, so also like stepping carefully through the forest, try not to step on seedlings, try not to, you know, smash through things. Uh, I have a lot of issues with dogs in the woods because I find dog poop everywhere. And I especially find those little bags of dog poop that people just leave behind trees where they think people can't see it. Um, so I, I would encourage people to, you know, be aware of your own impacts, but also not be afraid to go out into nature and take an active role in helping to manage your environment. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Gordon, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Again, Gordon Walker, a mushroom educator, PhD biochemist. Check out his Instagram because I think we only scratched the surface when it comes to mushrooms. Jess Starr with the book is Wonderland, Mushroom Wonderland, and founder of the Wild Pascal. Thanks so much, Jess, for coming on as well. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, Susie Britton, for this segment. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. There's a good reason. It's mushroom season. There's a good reason. It's mushroom season. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? 
You'll have to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.